Tax Guide, a podcast by the Tax Institute. I'm Robin Jacobson, the Senior Advocate at the Tax Institute, and your host of today's podcast. We love the vibe of tax, and here at the Tax Institute, we do tax differently. I'll be chatting with some of the tax profession's great thought leaders who will share valuable and practical insights you may not hear every day. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Vibe. I'm joined by Tim Lowe, Assistant Commissioner, Experience and Government, Individuals and Intermediaries, and the Tax Time Spokesperson for 2021 at the Australian Taxation Office. Tim's role is focused on improving the client experience for individuals to make it easier for individuals to comply with their tax obligations, whether they choose to lodge themselves or through a registered tax agent. Tim is the ATO's Tax Time Spokesperson for 2021 and is also the ATO's Steering Committee member for the Women in Law Enforcement Strategy Formal Mentoring Program. This works to promote women in senior leadership positions across a number of Commonwealth law enforcement agencies. Prior to joining the ATO, Tim worked at one of the world's largest mining companies, two international law firms, and a big four accounting firm. Tim holds a Master of Laws, a Bachelor of Laws, and a Bachelor of Commerce. Tim is a Chartered Tax Advisor with the Tax Institute and admitted to practice in Victoria. Tim, a very warm welcome to Tax5. Hi, Robin. Thanks so much for having me today. Look, it's great to have you here. And yes, we are into tax time yet again, um, how the uh, the world moves so quickly and uh, how the world has moved on from a year ago. That's right. It's gone really quickly. And here we are again. Absolutely. So what we're going to chat about today is obviously tax time. It's that time of the year where everyone turns their mind back to lodging tax returns. And we're going to look at some of the the impact that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on claiming work-related expenses and some record-keeping issues and some tips and traps. But I thought I'd start with tax time itself. There's always this perception that it's just a few months of the year, really July to September or maybe up to the end of October, being, of course, the day that individuals need to lodge if they don't have a tax agent. But when we think about lodging tax returns, it actually runs right through to mid-May, even June of next year. So how does the ATO define tax time? Yeah, really good question, Robin. Uh, look, it really depends on perspective, right? You know, from an agent's perspective, you know, I'm guessing it runs right through from 1 July to 15 May, right? Because, you know, particularly given taxpayers in a tax payable position will want wait until the, effectively the death to, to lodge, right? From a cash flow perspective. But, you know, from an ATO perspective, uh, as you quite rightly pointed out, it, it runs all year for us, um, particularly for our small business clients. Obviously, we do put a lot of focus on that period from 1 July to 31st of October for individual clients who are lodging themselves. But we also do a lot of uh, uh, work uh, together with the profession uh, to, to help their clients uh, lodge uh, right through to the 15th of May as well. So um, it's one of those things where we, yeah, we, we're here to help um, right throughout the year at the ATO, but obviously that you know, 1 July to 31st of October period is a really busy time for us as well. How does the ATO prepare for tax time? Look, it's, it's a really big uh, machine uh, tax time in the ATO. So, you know, every year the ATO uh, wants to ensure that we've got a system that's ready and can implement a number of uh, system changes and business changes to support tax time. So these changes are varied uh, and the implementation of these new measures and, and cyclical updates does take a lot of time. So we're months in advance that we, we start planning from, a, from an IT perspective. Even from a, you know, if you think about it from a resourcing perspective, getting the staff uh, trained up, uh, bringing people into the organisation to help us during this really busy period, that all is uh, is done months in advance to make sure that we're ready to help people 
get their tax return in, and in most cases, get their tax refund as well. There's been extra challenges too, uh, obviously due to COVID, but I'm thinking mm. historically, it used to take up to a couple of years to get a new label put into a tax return form. And yet, if you think about the legislative measures that we've had in the last 12 months, so we've now got the ability to carry back losses if you're a company and you've got temporary full expensing, we've had instant asset write-offs and so on. And all of these require extra reporting and labels and tax returns. So the long period that used to arise, it's had to be shortened significantly because obviously the 21 tax returners had to build in all these new legislative measures. That's exactly right, Robin. So, you know, I can't stress enough how hard everyone in the tax community has worked, not just in the profession, but also at the ATO. Uh, we had a lot of people working around the clock to make sure we could put through these changes uh, into you know, the tax return forms and the tax return process. And, and obviously road test a lot of this as well. So this has got to be done, you know, months in advance. So, and, and you've, got to, you've got to do it, you know, as, as the changes get come through the system. So it's really uh, something that, you know, we've all been working hard right across the tax profession to make sure we can get people getting their tax return right and making sure that uh, all those stimulus benefits were coming through as well. And let's not overlook the digital service providers or the software That's developers right. have had to update all their software and cloud-based programs in order that's that exactly. these can be implemented and updated in the accountant's offices. So that's exactly changes right. right across the profession. So in terms of the profession's role at tax time, I, I want to share with all our listeners in case they weren't aware, the ATO has what's called the Tax Practitioner Stewardship Group, the TPSG. And this is a, a forum that is represented by very senior ATO officers, a member of each of the major professional bodies, and also a number of practitioners. And at tax time, we meet weekly with the ATO. So it's a great opportunity and forum for us, the profession, to be able to raise issues with the ATO and for the ATO to pass messages back to us. So when I think about the profession's role at tax time, clearly it's a busy time for particularly the agents involved in lodging the I, the individual tax returns. And the business returns tend to kick in uh, typically from about August, September onwards. Mm -hmm. But there's this constant dialogue between the profession and the professional bodies and the ATO, which many taxpayers may not be aware of. That's right, um, Robin. And But um, before I sort of talk about that, I did want to say a, a big thank you to the tax profession. Um, the, the tax profession does a lot of heavy lifting uh, to support your clients. And I know, you know, speaking for, for many of us at the ATO, your willingness to work with us and stay on top of new developments to support your clients to get it right is really vital as, you know, important partners to the system. So I just want to say a big thank you there. And it's obviously pretty clear during last year with the stimulus measures and right now with the situation in New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia, that you're doing your best to help your clients uh, get the support they need. And uh, I hope your clients appreciate that hard work that you're doing uh, for them. But to your point, you're exactly right, uh, Robin, with the Tax Practitioner Stewardship Group. It is an opportunity for us at the ATO to tell you what's happening uh, with, with tax lodgements, uh, refunds, but also at the same time, it's important from, from our perspective to get feedback from the you know, Tax Practitioner Stewardship Group members, of which you're a member of, uh, as a representative of the Tax Institute. So, um, you know, as you said before, we've got, you know, really important messages that we want to tell the profession about, but at the same time, uh, we want to get that feedback uh, from yourselves to make sure that we're doing the right thing and, and making the changes we need to do on the fly, so to speak, as, as tax time um, rolls on. And I think the TPSG is such a collaborative group. It's collegial and it's frank and uh, very constructive and it's a, a very good feature of the system. Yeah, it's great. And I think it's one, one 
uh, one really good thing about it is that it, it covers off various aspects of the market. So you've obviously got the micro enterprises, um, you've got the, the bigger practitioner groups, and then obviously, you know, Tax Institute represents a multitude of uh, stakeholders as well uh, and, and members as well. So it's, it, it's just a really important group. And as you said before, it is a, it, it's about full and frank, you know, discussions about how we make it better for everybody. What support is available for both tax agents and BAS agents at this time of the year in particular, but throughout the year? Yeah, look, um, obviously, it's a really difficult time at the moment, given the current lockdowns in New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia. Um, we do have a range of support options available for, for tax practitioners, uh, and we can work with tax practitioners to tailor our assistance to meet a particular situation. I know the TaxMind 27 uh, article today had a lot of information about what support is available uh, for agents. From our perspective, if you do need help and support to lodge uh, for specific clients, um, you can request a deferral if that's something that you need. Lodgement deferrals effectively extend the due date uh, for lodgement of a document uh, by providing additional time to lodge without incurring a failure to lodge uh, penalty. The website uh, on the ATO has a lot of information about all uh, deferral mechanisms. Uh, one thing to note is if, you, if your whole practice has been affected by a significant issue or setback, or you're just generally overwhelmed, uh, we can work with you to co-design a supported lodgement program that helps you get your lodgement uh, program back on track. Do you have any current stats that you could share with us on how many lodgements there are or how many are lodging through agents or how many lodge in the, the first few weeks of July, for example? Yeah, I'm happy to um, share some stats in terms of how uh, how many people are lodging uh, in the in the first few weeks of uh, this year's tax time. We've actually received over 2.8 million uh, individual 2021 tax return lodgements uh, over the past few weeks. So it's an incredible number of um, people lodging, uh, and that can be due to obviously a variety of circumstances. Uh, Lamedo, obviously the tax cuts that were introduced for, at the start of last year, but only came into effect in October in terms of the withholding. Uh, and, and in terms of you know, year on year, um, this year it's a 7% increase on the same time last year uh, in terms of people lodging. So um, it, it is an incredible number of um, returns and the systems are, are doing well in, in making sure that um, people are able to lodge their returns uh, and get their refunds as well, Robin. Is it fair to say that those who are keen to lodge in early July are more likely to be in a refund position and therefore very keen to get their money back sooner? Yeah, I think that's a fair, fair assumption, right, uh, Robin? So uh, I think what we obviously at the ATO, we want people, we just want people to get it right. I think what we do see is some people make mistakes. So in past years, or every year really, there's, there's normally about 200 to 250,000 um, mistakes that we see in that first uh, little period of time where people have like forgotten to include income because they've they've lodged um, a little bit too early because their income statement hasn't been ready. So we'll talk a little bit more about when's a good time to lodge. But yeah, people do make mistakes, but, but you're right, absolutely right. It's mostly people um, with refunds uh, who, who do lodge early. We know that there is often that rush even the 1st or 2nd of July by some people who are just uh, chomping at the bit to be able to get their return lodged as quickly as they can. And just a reminder, of course, that the two main ways of lodging your tax return are through a registered tax agent or you can lodge directly yourself through your MyGov account. Very rare instances where a paper return is still accepted, but certainly the ATA doesn't encourage that any longer. We're moving into a digital space. So for those who like to lodge early, what are some of the risks of lodging too early? 
Look, we know tax agents probably have already got a lot of requests and, and will continue to get a lot of requests to lodge their clients' tax returns early. Uh, and I know, you know, in the competitive environment, there is a bit of pressure to do that. But look, lodging before, for example, the income statement is provided and tax ready and before pre-fill information has been received can really result in the wrong details being provided. I think one thing to remember is it can actually delay the tax return being processed or the speed in which um, the tax return can be processed. So typically we say, 10 business days, um, 14 days to for, for your tax return to be processed and for you to get your refund. But yeah, when you, when things go wrong, uh, it, it really can delay when you can get your refund if that's if that's what you're entitled to, you know, because there has been a mistake. And another risk which often doesn't get talked about, but I try to remind people about is in relation to you know, your deductions, you know, sometimes if you're in a rush to, to lodge your tax return, you, you forget the, you know, that, that receipt from the first of July last year, which you know, you could, which is, you know, rightly could be related to directly earning your income. So it's important to make sure that you've got all your deductions as well. So you, you, know, you get the refund that you're entitled to. When it comes to employers, and I know there are still some people out there that call them the group certificates, and they are showing their age <laughs> if they're calling it that. <laughs> For 20 odd years, it was a payment summary, but it's changed again with the introduction of single touch payroll reporting. So it's now called an income statement. Yep. And this is available through your MyGov account or, or through your tax agent. And you can get it from the ATO directly as well. But there are some people who are, of course, very keen to lodge their return, but it's really important they look at the status of that income statement. And employers actually have until the end of July to finalise that reporting. And so, therefore, it's really important to wait until it says tax ready rather than not tax ready. Now, it doesn't stop someone actually lodging in the meantime. But I think people just need to be mindful that if you're in the third week of July and you're still waiting for your employer to finalise, it's probably best to wait and hold off lodging your return until it is tax ready. That's exactly right, Robin. Um, it, it is really important to, to make sure that your income statement is tax ready. Uh, as you said before, typically um, employers have until the 14th of July to, to lodge their the income tax statement this year we've extended it to 31st of July because of the situation in New South Wales um, and it's really important that you do that because for the reasons I said before because if you do get it wrong uh, it can delay the speed in which you, you get your, your, your refund back. Uh, the other thing I would say is again relates to pre-fill you know as an agent if you are you know lodging return for your client you do have access to that inf pre-fill information and a lot of that pre-fill information only arrives at the end of uh, July as well so it's really important typically to wait for that time because it probably speeds up you know, the process in terms of lodging your tax return. And as I said before, we have seen in the past people make mistakes and it has resulted in amendments being made uh, to people's tax returns uh, before the actual assessment is lodged. So, you know, I think last year we amended over 500,000 uh, tax returns before we issued tax assessments. How we do that is we cross-check against third-party information to see if anyone has like admitted income. So for example, if you admitted income from a government agency like Services Australia, we'll check against that. And if it hasn't been included in your tax return, we'll include that return based on that information. Can you give some examples of what data is pre-filled and, and why it's better to wait until that data has been populated? Yeah, Robin, we've got, we get a lot of information from third parties. So we get information from obviously government agencies like Services Australia. Uh, we also get information from banks and other financial institutions, uh, as well as share registries uh, and, and, and health funds as well. So this year, uh, I think we get all the information from health funds. So that makes your um, the job easier for both 
tax agents and if you're preparing your tax return yourself uh, for people trying to uh, prepare their tax return. So th that's the typical information that we get from um, third parties. I'm happy to talk a bit, little bit later on about things around you know data matching as well, but those that's the information uh, we, we get from third parties. And, and again, it's all about trying to make the, the tax return process for tax agents and individuals as easy and as simple as possible. It also adds to the integrity of the system. That's exactly right, problem. So let's now turn our attention to the classic work-related expenses. So these are things like travel expenses, car expenses, certain clothing is able to be claimed. And working from home is not a separate label in the tax return. It actually comes under other work-related expenses. But working from home, let's start with that one, because millions of Australian employees have transitioned out of offices into home offices. So this has totally changed the landscape. It absolutely has changed the landscape and it might have changed the landscape, you know, forever, uh, to be honest. You know, last year, 4.4 million people in Australia claimed a working from home expense uh, in their, their tax return. So in the previous year, uh, it was 3.16 million. So that's pre-pandemic, it was 3.16 million. So that's nearly a 40% increase. Uh, and last year, $2.84 billion in working from home uh, expenses were claimed. And compared to the previous year, that was $1.7 billion. So, And Tim, if you're saying... Four point was it four point four million? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, last year, million. and that yep. was twenty twenty. I'd expect that to go up again for twenty one. Absolutely, absolutely, and we and we expect that. So we do expect you know things like working from home expenses to increase. It's just natural. You know, people are at home, so we. we I don't think we've got a problem with that. In fact, we, as we said before, and we can talk about a bit more, but you know, there's obviously the methods that we have available for you, for people to claim their working from home expenses. So. Uh, last year, um, we, we introduced for the last three months the temporary shortcut method to, to claim your working from home expenses, and we extended it this year. Uh, and it works. It's a very simple method, uh, it, and many of your tax agents will know that. It's just 80 cents per hour multiplied by the number of hours you've worked from home, and, and that's effectively uh, your deduction for all your working from home expenses. There's two existing methods, the 52 cents per hour fixed rate method uh, and the actual cost method, which are alternative methods that you can use to, to claim for uh, your working from home expenses. It's important to understand that whilst the rates can vary across those methods, particularly the, the fixed rate and the shortcut method, mm -hmm. you need to look at what that includes and what it doesn't include. So don't try claiming things that are already built into the particular method that you've selected. You, you spoke about the working from home expenses going up, and I'd expect that to be the case again in 21. But I'd also expect to see a decline in things like travel expenses and even car expenses, because people would not have been using their cars to travel for work nearly to the same extent as been historically the case. That's exactly right, Robin. And obviously in places like Victoria, a lot of people have been working from home for pretty much the whole year. So we do expect car and travel expenses to go down. Last year it went down 5.5%. This year, I would have thought it'd go down a lot more. Um, in fact, the only people have been travelling in Victoria is probably from their bed to the to the desk or the the dining table. But look, it will depend on obviously the jurisdiction that you're in. Uh, but yeah, we, look, we do expect you know car and travel expenses to go down because you couldn't you know we can't travel for conferences. It was hard to very, to do tax institute conferences, right? You had to do a lot of it virtually. So. Uh, yeah, we, we do expect those types of expenses uh, to, to go down um, uh, dramatically this year. We'll get into record keeping and, and those sorts of issues shortly. But thinking about the three golden rules of claiming a work-related expense, you must have incurred it, 
and we'll talk about that shortly too, <laughs> you must not have been reimbursed for it and there must be documentation to substantiate it. I want to talk about the second one. So a lot of people would not have been set up properly or adequately when COVID first hit. So millions of Australians have rushed out and bought computer equipment or monitors or webcams or new keyboards, mouse, whatever they needed, um, headsets. Now, where the employer has paid for this or reimbursed the employee, of course, there can't be a claim by the employee. So interested in the ATO's perspective and just reinforcing that message about what you can and can't claim. Yeah, that's exactly right, Robin. So, you know, look, if you have been working from home and if you had incurred the expense to buy, you know, a desk or a laptop or an iPad or phone to work, you obviously can claim the uh, deduction for that. Obviously, it depends on the price. You know, if it's $300 or less, uh, you can claim an outright deduction. Uh, but if it's over $300, uh, you do have to uh, claim a deduction as a decline in value or depreciation over a period of time. Now, that's obviously really going to depend on the effective life of the particular asset. So for a desk, I think it's like 20 years. So it's not going to be a very big deduction. But, you know, for something like a laptop, you know, that's two years. So assuming you've used a lot, uh, used it a lot for work, you know, that's quite a a big deduction that you can get over um, over a particular income year. Obviously, there's one thing that comes up a lot, which is around your know, internet and telephone costs. Look, if you're using the 80 cents per hour temporary shortcut method, that's all inclusive. So it already covers that cost. But if you are using the 52 cents per hour fixed rate method or the actual cost method, um, you can claim a deduction for that. One thing to note is to make sure that you're only claiming the work-related portion. So for example, let's say it's internet expenses, it's $100 a month, so $1,200 a year. You've been using it for work and you've been using it for Netflix, you know, you can only claim the work-related bit. So that's something that people need to, to remember. Uh, and it's an obviously a very difficult question for tax agents to ask, right? And get that information from the clients. But I guess what we're, you know, what we want people to do is to make sure that um, yeah, you, you are asking the question and and you know, trying to get as much information as you can from the client to verify the claim. And it becomes challenging, for example, if you're running the four-week diary to substantiate your private versus business use. And of course, the, the teenage members of the family were not on Netflix or any of the social media after 11 o'clock at night. No. So very <laughs> difficult to work out. I want to talk about clothing. Um, this has always been an area that has challenged agents and taxpayers as to what they can and can't claim. And there's in my view, always been a disconnect between what taxpayers think they ought to be able to claim and what they actually can claim. And of course, it's conventional clothing is not deductible. So just because you're forced to wear black because you work in a restaurant or just because there's a certain look that your employer wants doesn't mean it's deductible. And I'm not going to go through all the clothing rules now, but I wanted to talk about this in a COVID context. In the same way that just because you need to wear or expected to wear a suit to work, and that's not deductible, you're not able to claim your pyjama bottoms because you've been sitting in front of Zoom sessions for the last 12 months. And I could just see some people saying, oh, but I went out and bought extra pyjamas or extra socks or Ugg boots, whatever, in order to work from home. So therefore, that's deductible because if I'd not been working from home, I wouldn't have bought those things. <laughs> Look, Robin, that's, that's, you know, well, PJs are, you know, considered to be conventional clothing, so they're not a uniform. You know, there's only, probably only two people actually who could claim pajamas, and that's probably B1 and P2 from bananas and pajamas. But <laughs> look, apart, apart from them, you just can't claim those types of costs. They're, they're considered to be conventional clothing, and it's very similar to the, you know, the, the black pants, white shirt um, example that you used before. You know, there's only kind of three, you know, three situations. It's, it's got to be occupational specific. Uh, it needs to be, you know, a compulsory uniform or a non-compulsory uh, 
uh, uniform and it needs to be uh, protective clothing um, as well. So those are the types of um, situations in which you can claim. And if you've been working from home, it's very unlikely that you've been wearing that protective clothing in front of the front of the Zoom Zoom call. Look, even things like dry cleaning costs or repairs to clothing, which are deductible ordinarily when it's a compulsory uniform or a non-compulsory uniform that's registered. But I would have thought even those that typically would wear uniforms, many would have been wearing them a lot less working from home. Now, obviously, there are still some businesses where a particular type of retailer where they are still wearing the uniform to work and they're open face to face. But for those that used to be perhaps in an office environment where they wore a uniform, but now they're working from home, you'd expect dry cleaning costs to go down in that respect. That's exactly right. And, you know, if you've been in Victoria, you'd be lucky to find a dry cleaner that was actually open because of the, you know, the situation that people were in. People weren't going into the offices anymore. They were, they were working from home. So, look, you know, we've obviously got data analytics at the ATO that, you know, runs checks across everybody's tax return. But, yeah, like I'd be saying to, to people is, you know, really analyse what, you, you know, your tax return uh, and really, again, it's not, we're not asking tax agents to run an interrogation of their clients, but it's just, a, it's kind of just a, a common sense check about, you know, does that make sense? And, you know, you know given the situation and I'll, and it really will depend on the location that you're in, you know, if you're in New South Wales, for the most part of you, it was, it was fine until, until more recently, but, you know, if you're in Victoria, you know, the situation would be, you know, vastly different. So it really depends on people's facts and circumstances. Look, I've heard of other, which, which I'm going to describe as entertaining and amusing stories. So <laughs> I've heard of someone asking the ATO, I bought a dog to keep me company while I was working from home. Is the cost of feeding my dog and, and veterinary bills deductible? Of course it's not. I heard of someone who had their teeth whitened at great expense and they felt that that was necessary to make them look better to go for job interviews that would then lead to more accessible income. So therefore, they claimed that that was deductible too. So we do see some creative arguments. We, we certainly do. And I'm sure tax agents have even more uh, crazy claims that their, their clients uh, bring to them, which I'm sure you, you help uh, knock them out before they come to the ATO. But you're right, you know, we do see some crazy claims. But one thing we do have at the ATO is we've got some occupation guides. We've got nearly 40 occupation guides uh, that can help um, people work out what they can and can't claim uh, this tax time. So, you know, check out our website and that's, that can be really helpful for tax agents to use to support um, the views that they're providing to their clients as well. Tim, another aspect that the ATO uses, or rather a tool that they use, is talking to employers. So can you just explain how and why the ATO goes about doing this? Look, at the ATO, you know, obviously we see a lot of people putting tax returns, both from an agent perspective and a, you know, self-repairer perspective. But, you know, one thing I, I kind of harp on about, which I think people kind of get annoyed about is it's records, records, records. And I'm going to sound like a bit of a broken record. So pardon the pun there, but, you know, good records are like, I don't know, they're like the front door to the house. You can't even think about a deduction without uh, the record. So if you think your client has, you know, has made a questionable claim, um, and again, it goes back to what I said before, it's about just asking the question and, and, and making sure that it makes sense to you as an agent that what they're saying about their claim is, is legitimate. But, you know, one thing we do at the ATO, as I said before, is around data analytics. So we, you know, we'll look at um, a particular client's deductions against um, someone in a similar inc with a similar income in a similar industry. You know, deductions stick out like a sore thumb. 
you know, we'll be asking them questions uh, about whether that deduction is legitimate. And one of the ways we do that is we'll check with the, uh, the client's employer to confirm if A, that the client was actually required to spend that money uh, in the course of uh, their employment, and B, you know, to a point that you said before, Robin, um, whether they've been reimbursed for any of those expenses. Um, but just to be clear, though, we, we don't make any decisions around, you know, whether deductions denied based solely on, on, on that, you know, the, the information we get from the employer. But it is definitely something that we do consider in our decision making, especially when the client hasn't actually provided any evidence to support the claim in the first place. Uh, and as I said before, you know, we rely heavily on, you know, the professional expertise of, you know, tax agents and, you know, tax institute members who are tax agents. So we're not asking, you know, you to, you know, interrogate your clients, but yeah, it is important to exercise due diligence uh, and ask your clients questions as part of your, you know, professional obligations. Metadata is a really important aspect to this. And I, I want to speak for a moment about the way the ATA uses this data. If we think about our digital footprint, so we've got credit card traces when we pay for things. We've got our e-tags on our motor vehicles, our mobile phones. Now, if anyone can remember back to the 90s, when mobile phones first came out, they would often show at the top of the very small screen at the time the tower that the mobile phone was connected to at the time. And we don't have that feature on our phones anymore. So the ATO can use metadata. So for example, if someone is saying, well, I did a business trip 300K out of uh, Melbourne or Sydney, Adelaide, Perth, Brisbane, whatever. And yet their phone says, well, hold on, I spent the afternoon in the Yarra Valley, the Hunter Valley, the Barossa Valley or Margaret River then would the ATO look at that and say, gee, am I going to rely on the record that says the car was being used for that purpose or I'm, I'm going to rely instead on the phone data, which tells me where that mobile phone was positioned? And most people are not separated from their mobile phone of a distance of more than two feet. That's all right, Robin. No, that's exactly right. And, you know, every year we're improving the, the data that we get from third parties and the like and, and different sources to you know expand and, and continue to expand our data matching capabilities. So you know for instance you would have seen in the media that you know we've got you know data matching protocols with in relation to cryptocurrency exchanges, uh, in relation to the sharing economy, uh, particularly with the combination providers, uh, property management reports, innovated lease vehicle information. Uh, lifestyle assets, so information from uh, insurance companies about what people were uh, insuring their assets. And we'll, and we'll use all that information and, and cross-check that against uh, taxpayers to, to see if there's any discrepancies. And as you pointed out with your example before, there are discrepancies, but we'll be asking questions of agents uh, in, on behalf of their clients. The insurance one is really clever because if you've got anyone who owns an expensive car, artwork, a racehorse, an aeroplane, a boat, you know, all the good stuff in life, yeah. then they are typically going to insure it. And once you know that that policy is held over an asset, then all you've really got to do is look at who owns the asset, as in who's the policy holder. And then you can ask questions about, have you dealt with the private use of that asset? What mm. do the FBT issues look like? Are there issues where a company has bought an asset that's being used by a shareholder of the company? What about the elements of when it was disposed of? So I think lots of questions arise just by asking the question, who owns that particular asset? That's, that's exactly right, Robin. That's, you know, part of you know, the reason for getting that information is obviously to make sure that, um, you know, people you know, are complying with their tax obligations. And another part of that is an education piece, as you, as I think in terms of the points that you've raised before, just then, you know, part of it is, you know, we're trying to educate people to get it right the first time, you know, you know, we, we, yeah, obviously we can order, you know, with technology now, you can order a lot more people uh, 
um, compared to the old days when a lot of it was manual. Um, but at the same time, we just want people to make sure that they are doing uh, the right thing uh, in accordance with the tax system. And and if, if they're not, we've got this information uh, now that we can use to cross check against, you know, income and making sure that people include the right amounts of income. Because if you're not including much income and you've got these types of assets, well, obviously something's up. This is probably a very poor example in a COVID environment, but passport records. Now, I'm going to ignore the last income year because almost no one's allowed in and out of the country at the moment. But typically the ATO will check in with customs and border control. And I have heard of people who have been silly enough to fabricate a logbook for their motor vehicle to say they're using it for a work purpose. And then when it's matched up to the days the car is supposedly doing a work trip, it aligns with the days where they're physically out of the country because the passport stamp proves this. Yep. So, you know, if you're going to make up lies, be clever about it. And I say that very much tongue in cheek. <laughs> That's so right, Robin. Moving into uh, some other issues with capital gains, tax and assets and, and investment properties. Look, there's a whole separate conversation which we could absolutely have another time. But just what are some of the key issues people need to think about at tax time when they're making claims for things like rental properties and they're selling assets? Yeah, look, um, look, I'm happy to talk about um, rental properties uh, and, and what, you know, in capital gains tax in, in the context of that. We're just making sure that, you know, from a, you obviously include all your proceeds from the sale, which we obviously can cross-check, but I think it's also important to make sure that from a cost-based perspective, um, you are including everything that's uh, you required to include in your cost base to make sure that you are, you know, hopefully getting a capital gain and, and you've made some money there from your property, but also if you, you know, you've got a you know, capital loss that you, you're identifying the right, um, you know, cost base and, and, and proceeds from you know, the sale, the, uh, the rental property. Uh, in relation to cryptocurrency, look, we've seen a lot of people invest in cryptocurrency, over 600,000 people over the last few years. And, you know, Bitcoin prices have skyrocketed. So, you know, last June, it was about $12,000 for Bitcoin. In April this year, it was just over $80,000 for Bitcoin. And right now, it's about $45,000. So there is a lot of volatility at the moment. But it is becoming more mainstream. And we do see people looking to use it uh, uh, to include that in their investment portfolio. So what would we be saying to people and agents is just a reminder that, you know, when you do sell, swap or exchange cryptocurrency, there are capital gains tax consequences if uh, a taxpayer is holding the cryptocurrency as an investor. One thing to remember is, you know, if you have held the cryptocurrency for at least 12 months and you have made a capital gain, uh, there is a capital gains tax discount that is available as well. So uh, one thing um, we're doing at the moment to make sure that people are complying with their cryptocurrency uh, obligations is we've written to 100,000 taxpayers this year to remind them of their cryptocurrency tax obligations. So just a just a word of um, warning to make sure that you know, you're not ignoring those letters and not burying your head in the sand. And this year, when um, taxpayers lodge their tax return, whether it's through my tax or with a registered tax agent, 550,000 pop-up messages will, will come up to, to remind people that they've got a, a cryptocurrency transaction that's taken place and that they need to include that gain or loss uh, in their tax return. And this is a new technology. The ATA is starting to feed these real-time messages into tax return preparation. That's exactly right, Robin. So we're using the information that we're getting from the data matching protocols that we've uh, that we've entered into, and we're trying to make things, again. It's just trying to make thing, uh, people get it right the first time, and, and to just remind people because you know if you've made a number of transactions, you might have forgotten that that you, you had a cryptocurrency gain or loss. So you know this is a, is a reminder to um, taxpayers if they haven't got the records in place to get the records in place, but also to make sure that they include that in their tax return. 
there are a lot of rules around deductions for rental properties. And I think about travel expenses and repairs and depreciation claims. There are lots of things people need to be mindful of. Mm. And it's almost getting to the point where it's so technical now that to do it yourself, you may run the risk of making an error. So it is somewhere that I would encourage people to seek the advice of a, a tax professional in that respect. The definition of spouse, I just want to pause on this for a moment because there are some people out there that go to fill in their tax return and we see a lot of what I'm going to describe as de facto relationships. So they're not necessarily legally married, but certainly in long-term relationships. And it may surprise a number of listeners to know that spouse for tax purposes actually includes someone that you're not legally married to, but you live with on a, a regular and domestic basis. Look, that's right, Robin. Um, look, what is considered about, yeah, isn't just, you know, the hubby or wife um, situation. So it also does include, as you said, um, someone who can live with on a domestic basis in a relationship as a couple. So, you know, the perfect example is the de facto partner would also be considered a spouse. And it's really important that, that you declare that uh, spouse income in your tax return uh, because it does contribute to forming, you know, the, the whole picture of the individual's tax return uh, each year. And, and something that sometimes people forget is that um, depending on your spouse's income, it can give you different tax results, uh, both obviously positive and negative. So, you know, from a positive perspective, you know, there's things around, you know, the private health insurance rebate, uh, Medicare levy reduction, um, you know, SAPTO. There's all these different um, things where you could be missing out if you haven't declared um, your spouse's income on your tax return. Tax time is a very, unfortunately, popular time for scams. They know that as in the scammers know that people are looking at their tax, it's on their mind, and there are some vulnerable people in our society who are contacted and threatened with arrest and prosecution and fines and even incarceration as in jail mm. for not paying debts that actually don't exist. Now, when information is coming out in, in such droves at the moment, how can people be sure that what is being sent to them through an email or a text message or indeed a phone call, is actually the ATO and not a scammer? Yeah, it's a really good question, Robin. And, you know, scammers are, you know, particularly around tax time, targeting, you know, vulnerable Aussies to, to see if they can get money and take advantage of, of people at this time. And there are typical, a couple of typical um, scams that, that are floating around at the moment. And then I can talk about some of the things that uh, that people can do to spot such scams. But, you know, from a phone call perspective, one of the, or there's a couple of common ones, is the, the fake tax debt scam and the, suspended tax file number scam. So this is the most common scam. You, you've probably received a couple yourself, Robin. I know I have. Um, and that scam's you know, reported to us in a way where the scammer calls you and they threaten things like arrest, jail or deportation uh, if you don't immediately pay that fake tax debt. So um, again, that's not something that we do at the ATO. Um, so again, we would be saying to people, you know, hang up and, and yeah, just don't give them any of their personal financial information. Another common tax scam we're seeing is through email. So uh, where recipients get a message uh, requesting them to click on a link to log on to a dummy MyGov website. Uh, my advice there again is, you know, never access online government agency services through hyperlinks. We would never do that. And, and most uh, government agencies don't do that either. So, you know, in terms of how can people spot, I guess, such scams, um, the ATO does call uh, text and email uh, taxpayers. But there are some like dead giveaways uh, where you know it's not from the tax office. So like I said before, we won't threaten you with immediate arrest, jail or deportation. Um, and you typically get a friendly voice on the other side of the phone call um, speaking to you. 
Another thing that we don't do is we, we won't project our number onto your phone. So it will normally come up with a no, uh, no caller ID number if we are calling from the ATO. And we don't use what I would say, I don't know if it's the right term, but we don't use pre-recorded or robo-cord type messages to call people. So it'd always be a real person on the other side of the phone. Uh, and finally, we just never request cryptocurrency or Apple gift cards as payment for tax debt. So it's a dead giveaway if someone is is, is asking you to do that. Um, my advice, you know, instead is to, you know, call the ATO's dedicated scam line if you think that the person is you know, a scammer. We've got a number, it's one 540 and, and the reason why we just repeat that number again, Tim. Yeah, it's one 540 Alternatively, you can go onto our website, but it's really important that you do that because it helps not just yourself and your loved ones, but also people in the Australian community who are vulnerable. Uh, and we do get people, yeah, every year, you would think that people don't get ripped off, but they do. It's despicable behaviour. Uh, it's un-Australian behaviour, and we need to put a stop to it. And obviously, the government is trying to do that. We're trying to do that at the ATO. The ACCC is trying to do that. But yeah, we need everyone's help to make sure that people don't scam others. So if you do receive a call, think it might be a scammer and don't feel obliged to you know, keep talking to the person. You can hang up. Um, as I said before, if you're unsure, just give us a buzz at the ATO to say, oh, you know, was that person a scam or was it a legitimate call? And again, with emails and SMSs, just don't click on the hyperlink and don't respond to, to those SMSs and emails. Tim, your remarks then reminded me of many years ago when I was shopping at one of the department stores. And I was browsing in the handbag section and got chatting to one of their sales assistants who shared with me the extent to which they have theft. And it was just eye-watering figures in terms of the amount of stock that walks out the door. And I looked around the shop floor and I was just thinking to myself, all of these items that are on sale here are being purchased by the department store, but they can't on-sell all of them because some of them are being stolen. Mm. So that means that cost has to be priced in to the ultimate selling price that is being sold. So in other words, all of us retail shoppers are paying more for the goods we're buying because embedded in that is covering the cost of the stolen goods. And to me, it's the same with the tax system. If everybody paid the right amount of tax, we would all be paying less tax. Look, and it that's sounds right. simple, but I think there's this operation at a, well, what's in it for me? And I see someone else doing it and they seem to get away with mm -hmm. it. This whole perception of, well, the tax system seems to be helping everyone else but me. Yeah. No, Robin, like I'm with you. Like I think sometimes people forget, you know, we do a lot of tax gap analysis and in the individual's market, the tax gap is over $8 billion, which is four times higher than the, the multinationals tax gap. And obviously there is a perception out there that the multinationals aren't paying their fair share of tax. But when you look at the statistics, it just shows that individuals aren't actually doing the right thing. And it's really important to remember that the tax revenue is is used for for, for various things, you know, public services like your schools and your hospitals, and even grants. You know that you know that the people get, uh, and small businesses get, and 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 people vulnerable vulnerable people get as well. So it's really important that you know, people do the right thing at the ATO. We want people to claim the deductions they're entitled to, nothing or nothing less, and we want people to get it right. We just want people to do the right thing, and when if people do the right thing, uh, it just makes it a better tax system for all of us. And it really is dependent on registered tax agents, uh, um, the ATO and, and 
and even individuals to, to work together to make sure we can get the tax system um, running as smoothly as possible. You know, we're, we live in a really lucky country. You know, we, we have a you know, wonderful tax system. Yeah, you know, obviously it can get better, you know, with people doing the right thing. And, and we look, we know a lot of people do the right thing. It's in our statistics that show that a lot of people do the right thing. But there are some people that uh, who aren't. And, you know, we're obviously at the ATO, we'll, we'll follow those people up as well. So clear messages here. Seek advice if you need it. Claim only what you're entitled to claim. Keep really good records. Uh, particularly keep a record of the hours you're working at home at the moment, even into 21-22, we're still to find out what the rules are going to be for this year, but start keeping a record now of your hours because you may need them. Uh, if you get it a little bit wrong, now it's different to someone who's blatantly taking advantage of the system and manipulating it, and, and yes, we know where the rules stand there, but if someone makes an honest mistake, if they're trying their best and get it a little bit wrong, ATO response, and we, we might close on that note. No, look, we're here to help. So, you know, obviously people make genuine mistakes. You know, the taxes are pretty difficult, right? Like, I'm, I'm, you know, we've both been working in the industry for a long time and, you know, every year there's changes. Move out of the industry for a few years, you're kind of starting all over again because of the number of changes that happen. So, you know, at the ATO, we know it's difficult. Uh, we are trying to make things easier for for you to lodge your tax return if you're lodging with a tax agent. We're trying to make things easier for tax agents. We, we know obviously the Tax Institute has some fantastic resources as well uh, to help tax agents uh, lodge uh, tax returns on behalf of their clients. So look, it, it is a difficult area. You know, if you've made a genuine mistake, you know, we're here to help people get it right. But as you said before, Robin, if you know if you are taking the mickey out of the system, then you know we will come down. And that's what most Australians would want us to do because a lot of people do the right thing uh, and just want to make sure that they're doing the right thing. And we're grateful for, for everyone who does do the right thing. Tim, thank you so much for your comments today at the Tax Institute. We're very proud and, and privileged to be part of the ongoing process to contribute to these very valuable conversations. And uh, I wish the ATO all the best through this next tax time season. Thanks, Robin. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, yeah, I just want to finish off and just say, yeah, look, the Tax Institute is, is a wonderful partner in the tax system and we're really grateful for your support. Thank you Thanks, very Robin. much, Tim. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tax Five. I've been chatting with Tim Lowe, Assistant Commissioner, Experience in Government, Individuals and Intermediaries, and the Tax Time Spokesperson for 2021 at the ATO. To keep up to date with Tax Five, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to connect with us on social media, follow the Tax Institute on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can join the conversation on our member-only community forum at community.taxinstitute.com.au. Not a member of the Tax Institute? Join a collective voice of 15,000 practitioners at the heart of the profession and find out what the best tax professionals have in common. Join today and you'll have an all-access pass to the tools, resources and opportunities that make our members some of the most successful tax practitioners around. For more information, visit Membership. You can also contact us by emailing taxvibe at taxinstitute.com.au. We look forward to you joining us next time.